0: Hal Lindsey Doctrines of Salvation Number five Law versus Grace. I want to give you a list of the doctrines which I want you to define, get the main scripture on, illustrate and apply. Now, in the library, there are several sets of uh, theology. I think one of the best books for this, and I'll have to check and see how many there are over there, is the Baker's Dictionary of Theology. But I think the best for this assignment is probably the New Schofield Reference Bible. And uh, I don't mind if you get your ideas out of that. Just put it in your own words, because I'm not interested in, uh, you know, how brilliant you are at making up something, but I'm interested in you getting it accurate. And so, if uh, if you are thinking about getting a Bible, I heartily recommend this new Schofield Reference Bible, because the footnotes, on doctrines are just tremendous. You'll find in the back of the Schofield a section on the uh, subject index. And you can look up the various subjects in there. It's listed under index to subject chain references. But however you do it, these are the doctrines I want you to give a brief definition, the main scripture, illustrate, and apply to the Christian life and to the gospel. First, the doctrine of spiritual death. What is it? And so on. Secondly, the doctrine of the sin nature. third, the doctrine of slavery to Satan, fourth, the doctrine of God's holiness being a barrier to fellowship. Define why holiness bars the sinner from God's fellowship. Alright, those are the main points. Another one will be the doctrine of sin itself. Not the sin nature, but uh, what is sin and its broadest sense. And. Uh, What are some good passages on the deeds of sin or the acts of sin? All right, today we want to talk about law, sin's revealer. Yes? What's this? That that I just gave you? Yes, it was. Well, it'll be due by the end of next week. You should have been picking this up as we went along. I mean, most, I'm sure some of you already have that at least worked on. These are what you call class projects because I'm assigning things that I know will be of the greatest usefulness to you in your own personal ministry in dealing with people. And so, you know, whether you get it from me or not is irrelevant. I don't want you to do these things as unto me, but as unto the Lord, because this will really make you able to deal with people, all right? I asked you a question yesterday about uh, what do you think is the meaning of 1 Corinthians 15:56, where it says, the strength of sin is the law. Let's have some ideas. Who wants to be first? It arouses the old sin nature. How would this happen? In other words, let's be a little... Okay. All right, he he said that the law is the power of sin in the sense that it arouses the sin nature into rebellion. The sin nature is dormant until you bring in the principle of law. and you bring in the principle of law, it causes the old nature to rebel. All right, that's getting at the bottom of it. Any other ideas? All right, he says that without law, there would be no sin because there would be nothing to break. And and you see, at the heart of sin is actually A transgression of some known law. All right, yes. She said that we are bound to sin, and the only thing that can break the chain is Christ's death. Oh, you're partly right. The reason is because the death of Christ removes the believer from the jurisdiction of the law. Yes. If we didn't know the law, there would be no such thing as sin because we wouldn't know how to break so the answer to the answer to the world is to do away with the law is that correct <laughs> it can't be done away with that's correct right that because law is a principle it's written on your conscience the law as used in the Bible is not just the law of Moses now this is where people make their big mistake the law is not just the law of Moses it is a principle and romans chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 around that area says that all men have the work of the law written on the conscience and the conscience is has enough of god's righteous standards in it to prod our sin natures into action all right Let's okay Were the Old Testament laws dealing with sin itself or with the result of sin? Is that correct? I don't know that I understand your question. Well, oh yeah, I think I can answer your question by going on into what I have prepared here. All right. I want to start up on the Doctrine of Law. Now, all I want you to do today on this section is listen, because I'm going to give you exactly what I've got printed up here Sunday night. We're going to have it typed up and printed so you don't have to take notes. What I want you to do is listen. I... I want you to look at, I'll tell you to look at a few Bible references, but the main thing is I want you to, right now, depend upon the Holy Spirit to teach you because, boy, this is an important issue. What is the purpose of law? You see, law emanates from the character of God. God is in himself perfect righteousness, and he's perfect justice, and therefore law in the universe is simply a natural outworking from what God is. All law has its origin in the character of God. Since God is a moral being, there of necessity must emanate from him a standard. All right? This standard has been expressed to man in various ways. law started actually in the creation of man because man was created with a conscience, which is moral reasoning power, and in the conscience of man there is a law. He has the law of God written on his heart, as it says in Romans chapter 2. And the first expression of law outside of man was in the Garden of Eden when God said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then after that, man was allowed to live by the law of his conscience for a while. But pretty soon, man found a way of rationalizing around his conscience, and he made white black and black white and everything some shade of gray. And so after man being tested under this, you see, his conscience was supposed to convince him that he couldn't live up to his conscience and therefore drive him to God. But man found a way of so rendering ineffective his conscience that God started a new way of dealing with man. And he called aside one man named Abram, which means the father of high and windy places in the original word, And he renamed him abraham which means the father of many nations and through this man he created a nation and gave them great promises but great responsibilities and he said through you and through your seed i'm going to give you the written revelation of myself and you are to preserve this written revelation in its purity You will be the physical race through which the Savior of the world will be born and make his entrance into humanity, and you are to take this written revelation about him and to spread it to the world. Now, that's why God created the nation of the Jews right there, for reasons. Now, through these people, he revealed in objective form his law. Since man had rationalized around his conscience, God gave an objective law in writing. But from the very beginning, an extremely small part of the human race has ever understood why God gave the law. And that's all important. Why did God give the law? Well, here are some of the purposes why God gave the law. First, it shows what sin is. Man... Lives a way of life which is incompatible with the character of God and so God reveals in this written revelation the things that are incompatible with his character because sin now here's the definition in case you didn't get it the last time I gave it you might want to write this one down sin in its theological meaning is this sin is any lack of conformity In thought, word, or deed, to the moral character of God. Sin is any lack of conformity in thought, word, or deed to the moral character of God. And the four spiritual laws, we have a pragmatic definition of sin, which is good, but we need to also have a theological explanation in our own repertoire of ideas. All right? So God gave a law to show the things which were not compatible with his character, and he gave the law to define what sin is, all right? This is true to the unbeliever, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, where it says the law was given to show what sin is. The problem is most people stop there. That isn't the only reason the law was given. Now, the law was given to show the believer what sin is, too. Romans 7, 6. Now, all of this will be on the paper when you get it. All right, the second reason God gave the law was to make man sin more. Now, this usually staggers people. Because it sounds like God is working against himself. Turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. It says, And the law came in, that transgression might increase. The word transgression looks like this in the Greek, parabasis, p-a-r-a-b-a-s-i-s, and it means a deliberate violation of a known standard. And the emphasis is upon knowing that you're breaking it. All right? God gave the law in order in the first place to make transgression increase. Now, man was falling short of the glory of God when there was no written law, but he wasn't held accountable for that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God does not want to reign on earth. That God does not want there to be sin and corruption on earth. So he's provided a way to cut it out, and it's not through the law. But the law is the first stage in bringing about the solution. So God gave the law in order to make man sin more. Now why would God do a thing like that? Because man is so self-centered and so conceited that unless he is given something that that he can try to keep and that he can't keep so that he keeps failing to keep it, he will never admit that he is sinful through and through. So the law was given to make come out on the outside where man could see it, what God saw on the inside all the time. The law was given to reveal man's sinful nature, to show man what he is because he does what he does. And so the law was given to actually make men sin more. The law actually prods the old nature to sin all the more. Now this can be illustrated in many facts of life. The best illustration I've heard in recent days is one given in the Reader's Digest, where a man who was the manager of a new resort hotel in Galveston, Texas, as the hotel was about to be finished, he realized that uh, he had rooms that were utterly beautiful, and that each room was, uh, had its own picture window, big plate glass window, each room had its own balcony. And he looked at this and he said, you know, I bet people are going to fish off those balconies. And if they fish off the balconies, they'll have to have heavy lead weights in order to get the line out in the water. So when they reel those lines in, the wind will blow those lead sinkers into those beautiful windows and break them. So he said, have printed up some four by six cards and put on it absolutely no fishing off the balconies. And he had these put under the glass of every dresser in every room. Then they had their gala opening. After the first week, he counted up the damage, and there were more than 40 windows broken out by, guess who? Fishermen. He was desperate to know what to do, and someone suggested taking those silly cards out of the room. So he did, and immediately the windows stopped breaking. You see, this just reveals a fact of life. That man has such a sinful nature that the minute you give him a law, he's going to rebel against it. Law actually causes us to rebel, and law actually suggests doing the very thing it forbids us not to do. For instance, when I was a kid, There was a woman that lived in our neighborhood, and I live in the neighborhood of, oh, at least a thousand homes, but on Halloween, 999 homes were left unscathed, but there was one that never got missed. It was the home of a lady named Mrs. Cannon, and we used to call her Boom Boom Cannon because she used to shoot a shotgun at us when we would uh, do something to her house, and she narrowly missed us many times. But about two weeks before Halloween, Mrs. Cannon would see us boys walking by. We'd be walking by that house. We wouldn't have any devilment on our mind about her. And she'd wave her fist at us and say, You better not touch my house this this year. Boy, what matter danger? We knew we were going to be shot at. But who cares? Ego had been defied. What matter wounds? And so she actually helped us to remember it was time to to really mess her house up again. Boy, we had the most diabolical schemes. You have a house built on one side of town and you put a plate glass window in front of it and you build an identical house on the other side of town and put a plate glass window in front of it on... The one on the other side of town you put a sign out there, do not throw rocks at window. Which one you think is going to be broken out first? I can still I can just see that twelve year old boy coming by, doesn't have rocks on his head at all. No rocks on his mind. He comes up to that sign, he looks at the sign and don't throw rocks at window. He starts looking for a rock. You see that's the kind of people we are and god knows that and so that's why he gave the law to make the transgression increase now it does the same thing to the believer romans 7 verses 8 and 13. the law has the same purpose to the unbeliever and to the believer Verse 7 of Romans 7, it says, uh, And what shall we say, then? Is the law sin? May it never be. See, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's perfect. It came from God. That's the whole point. A perfect law will always stir up a sinful nature. The more perfect it is, the more it stirs it up. And so... He, Paul says, On the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. The law reveals what sin is. For I would not have come to know about coveting or lusting, literally, if the law had not said, You shall not lust. But then, verse 8, it's stirred up by the law. But sin taking opportunity, and sin's in the singular, it means the nature of sin. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me lusting of every kind. For apart from law, sin is dead. Now this is what it means in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, when it says the power of sin is the law. The old nature actually gets its power from the law. It uses the law like a fulcrum to deceive us and make us rebel against God the law was never given to produce righteousness it was never given to be a way of salvation and one of the most classic illustrations of the total conceit of man is the historical uh, record of israel israel took the very thing that was given to show them that they could never earn their way to be accepted by god they could never produce a life that god would accept They took the very thing that was to show them that, and they started trying to keep it in order to gain God's acceptance. That is the greatest error that has ever been committed in the history of mankind, right there. In order to do that, they had to reduce the law down to the level that they could keep it, so they had a vast library of books on the meaning of the law. But the law simply brings sin out where we can see what we are. And this is plan A of salvation. God offers the world two plans of salvation. There are only two ways of salvation. The first is plan A. Now, under plan A, all you have to do is keep the law perfectly without ever breaking it. And God offers that to you. He said, you think you can help me save you? Okay, here's plan A. Take a try. I want you to see this. Look at uh, Luke chapter 10 for a minute. Luke chapter 10, page uh, 118, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? To inherit eternal life. Now, which plan has this man come on? Plan A. Why? Huh? What shall I do? Correct. So that tells us his idea about how he's going to be saved. So he's come by plan A. So Jesus answers him with plan A. So Jesus says, What is written in the law? How does it read? Now notice, Jesus did not say, Look, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. All you can do is admit that you're totally helpless and throw yourself upon my mercy and accept the gift of full forgiveness, past, present, and future sin. Why didn't Jesus say that? I'll tell you why he didn't say it. Because no man would accept grace unless he's convinced in his experience that he can't do it. Man is so blind by his own conceit that until he has been convinced in his experience that he's totally helpless and unacceptable to God, he will not accept a gift of grace. And men will not accept grace until they've been under the law for a while. you got to go through law school before you'll ever accept grace. And so Jesus uh, says... Uh, What do you read in the law? How does it read? And and the Pharisee answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Keep on doing this, and you shall live. Now he uses the present tense here, which means do it habitually without stopping keep on doing this and you shall live well the lawyer began to think about that and he says "Uh uh-oh and so he tries to get out from under it he says but wishing to justify himself because you see the guilt started setting in so he switches to self-justification instead of accepting a gift of forgiveness and wishing to justify himself he said to jesus and who is my neighbor You see, and then Jesus hits him with the prejudice problem that was worse than the one we've got in the United States. Jesus shows that the Samaritan is his neighbor, and he's to love the Samaritan as himself, and the Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be lower than dogs. The Samaritans were half-Jews and half-Gentiles, and the Jews thought that if you so much as touched one of them, You were ceremonially unclean for a week. and Boy, I mean, it took some doing. Even after the resurrection of Christ and the spread of the gospel, it took 15 years before anyone really went down and started preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Samaria. And then Peter was called on the carpet for doing it. That's how deep the prejudice was. And Jesus says, you would love that one that much. And he says, uh-oh. And what was Jesus doing? He was using the law on him to show that he could never make it by his own efforts. And that's the purpose of the law. It makes men sin more. All right, another purpose is it condemns man. The law condemns man. James 2.10, Galatians 3.10. James 2.10 says, Whosoever keeps the whole law yet offends in one point is guilty of how much? All. And so plan A, you see, is a hypothetical way of salvation. In common terms, it's a let's pretend way of salvation because nobody can make it. But nevertheless, God offers it to you when you come to him and say, What can I do that I might inherit eternal life? He says, okay, here's the plan. Keep my law perfectly without ever breaking it. Now, no one's ever made it yet, but good luck. All right, the fourth reason that God gave the law is that it is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, that's to the unbeliever. Galatians three 24. All right, let's take a look at that. Galatians three twenty four, page three twenty. Since men like to try to God, come to God by human good, the law was given to give them a good opportunity to try out their human good. Now, to be sure, there are degrees of human good. But the problem is none of human good is acceptable to God because God says man can do nothing that is spiritually good, that is truly spiritually good. And the law reveals that. All right, Galatians 3:24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, here's the meaning of that. A tutor write it in English this time, but this is the Greek word. The word is Pythagos. Now in the Roman world a pottygagus was a slave that was assigned to one to the children of a Roman family. Now the slave who was the Pygogus had the responsibility of taking that child by the hand every day and walking him to school and seeing that he got there. There was no hooky in those days. The slave would stay there and make sure that this child stayed in school, and then when school was out, he would take that child by the hand and lead him back home. Now, that was his duty. He saw to it that the child got his education. Now, God says that uh, the law is my piety, Gagas. Now, here's what the law does. When I try to keep the law and I see that I cannot keep it, the law then becomes this slave who takes me by the hand and leads me to Christ that I might be justified by utter faith. In other words, the law so completely drives me to a sense of helplessness as I see I cannot keep it, That once that's accomplished, then I'm I'm ready to graduate from school and the law then leads me to Christ that I might by, by faith alone be declared as righteous as God is righteous. That's what justification means. To be declared as righteous as God is. And God does that by a judicial act when I come by utter faith. Now that... Once that is accomplished, then what happens to the Piedagogus? Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. Now, can it be any more clear? We're no longer under the law, because the law has completely finished its purpose. You're not saying the law is not good when you say you're not under the law. You're saying the law achieved what it did, and that's what it means in Romans 3.31 when it says, do we therefore discredit the law with faith? But Paul says, no, we establish the law. That means we establish it in the purpose for which God gave it. Once the law drives me to utter despair of trying to help God save me, then By faith I accept a gift of forgiveness which brings me completely into God's acceptance. And once that's done, the law is finished. But you know, people that are Christians still try to live by the law, so it has one more job, and that is for, you know, in the same way that the the non-Christian has to learn that he can't become acceptable to God by his own works, so the Christian has to learn that he can't live the Christian life by his own efforts, and so the law, to the believer, is in uh, its purpose in this regard, is in Romans 7:14 through 7:15 uh, through 25, where it drives the believer who tries to live by the principle of law to such utter despair that he cries out with Paul, "O oh, wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from the body of this death?" Now, you're not ready to walk in the Spirit until you've been driven to utter despair of trying to help God live the Christian life. One man asked me, Hal, what's the greatest prerequisite to living the Christian life? And I said, to become desperate. To get to the point where you have no more aces up your sleeves, no more little tricks by which you think you can help God, you're driven by the law to utter faith, only this time it's not to Christ, it is to the Holy Spirit. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to the Holy Spirit that we might have victory through faith. Now that's the purpose of the law. Here are some necessary statements. The law was not given to produce righteousness but to prove guilt and condemnation. Romans chapter 9 verses 30 through 10:4 through chapter 10 verse four. Now, I'll have to let you read that on your own. That passage is self-explanatory. The most sincere people who ever lived at trying to gain God's acceptance by religious deeds were the Jewish people, and it says they have never attained righteousness yet. Paul says, I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he shows there that sincerity is not going to make God accept them they are sincere but they are sincerely wrong so it is with the Buddhist he may be sincere but he's sincerely wrong and he's not willing to admit that he can't do it and therefore he can't be saved the Hindu or the Methodist or the Baptist whatever you have the one who's still trying to do something in order to become acceptable to God is not acceptable It isn't until we come to see that there is nothing I can do which God will accept that then I come by faith and receive a gift of salvation. And it isn't until in the Christian life I come to the point where I see there's nothing I can do to please God, that human good was rejected at the cross, that I can then walk in the Spirit by utter faith. I see that it's all up to him. And it becomes a moment-by-moment attitude of relying on the Holy Spirit. All right? The law was given to drive us to justification by grace through faith. It also drives us to sanctification by grace through faith. And sanctification means a progressive victory and being brought to maturity in Christ. All right? Law and grace are complete systems and are mutually exclusive. Turn to Romans 6.14 4, for a minute. Romans 6.14. The law points out the total depravity of man. And total depravity doesn't mean that there isn't human good. It just means that human good will never be accepted by God. Man can do things that society believes are good, but they are never good from God's viewpoint because God, when a man gives a million dollars to a church, they may give him a banquet and and have great speeches about how great he is, but God looks at the motive which gave the million dollars. And if the man was doing it in order to gain the approbation of God and the applause of men, then it's an abomination in God's sight. Because the motive makes the difference of whether it's intrinsically good or whether it's human good. But on this subject of law, Romans six fourteen. For sin, and this is in the singular, it means the nature of sin, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Now notice there's no definite article before either one of these. The reason is because it's talking about law as a principle, not just the law of Moses. And it's talking about grace as a principle. They are actually two complete systems within themselves. Now here here is what law is as a principle and what grace is as a principle, and we'll just contrast it. Law has a definite standard. which is external. Grace, however, has a standard, but the standard is a person who lives inside of you. It's not without a standard, but it's not something outside that you are commanded to keep, but it's a person inside of you who has the standard in his heart and communicates it to your desires. All right, secondly... Law emphasizes works. Deuteronomy twenty eight one. Grace emphasizes faith. Galatians three, eleven through twelve, and of course many other passages. Law is a principle, works by a fear motivation. In other words, what'll God do to me if I don't do this? Grace works upon a love motivation. The Holy Spirit shows me through what God had to do to, to give me eternal life and to forgive me. The Holy Spirit shows me through that how much God loves me and then creates a response of love toward God and that response of love from the Holy Spirit is the motivation for living the Christian life that God can accept. He can't accept anything else the same way, when I leave home, I don't have to sit my wife, Jan, down and say, Now, Jan, here are just a few rules I want you to keep on the kitchen wall so you can see them every day now. First, Jan, thou shalt not have other men over to the house. Secondly, thou shalt not flirt with them. Thirdly, thou shalt not kiss them. And thirdly, thou shalt not dink around any farther than that. Now, you see, listen, I'd be afraid to do that, you know. I really would. I know what law will do. I'd be scared to death to do something like that. But rather, I know that the love that's in her heart will take care of all of that, and I just don't have to sweat it. Now, there is one law that we're under today, and it is this. Thou shalt not sweat it. All right, the, third, uh, the fourth principle of law is that our acceptance with God is based on our performance. Now, this is the big one. This is the big point here. Under law, I must perform and then be accepted on the basis of my performance. Under grace, I am totally accepted just as I am and then I perform the performance is produced in me through the Holy Spirit Ephesians 1 6 talks about this acceptance under grace Deuteronomy 28 2 talks about acceptance under law all right fifth the law depends upon the flesh Romans 8 3 well you, again you don't have to worry about these references because you'll get them all in this printed paper you'll get the law depends upon the flesh, and the flesh means my efforts, my ability. However, grace des- depends upon the Holy Spirit in me, Romans 8, 4. Six, the law results in one thing, death And condemnation 2nd Corinthians 3 verses 7 through 9 grace results in life and righteousness Romans 8 4 the righteousness of the law is produced in the one who by grace through faith is depending on the Holy Spirit grace means that everything's provided and I don't deserve it faith means I simply accept what God's provided in the Christian life, the only requirement is to walk by grace through faith. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so keep walking in him, Colossians 2.6 says. So by the same principle that I accepted Christ at a point of time, I live the Christian life moment by moment. And that's grace through faith, and that not of myself is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Every minute, that's the way I live the Christian life. It's not of me, it's a miracle. We'll have a lot more to say about that later. Now, this is so important that the Apostle said that if you're under the principle of law, sin will have dominion over you. But if you're under grace, it will not have dominion over you. Now, I got a letter from some guy in uh, Colorado. Actually, I didn't get it. He sent it to Bill Bright. I spoke in uh, Colorado sometime just before Christmas at a retreat at Estes Park. Well, there was some guy there who finally said that he was convinced of the Lord that he should write Bill Bright, and he wrote a letter about what he heard me say there. And he said, Dr. Bright, I believe that Hal Lindsey is teaching heresy for these reasons. And he listed several of them. And I followed... The letter, of course, was sent to me by Dr. Bright to answer. And uh, so I followed his argument, and where the thing fell apart was this. He said, now, Hal Lindsey said that we're not under any law and that all we have to do is trust Jesus and depend upon the Holy Spirit to work in me the standards of the Scripture." Now, I did say that. He said, but you know, the result of that is that people without law just go out and send up a storm, he said. Now, and he, he gave some illustrations, and I'm going to check them out because I believe he's a liar. But uh, anyway, he said that, you know, if you just have this standard of just trusting Jesus, and just depending upon the Holy Spirit moment by moment, then what's going to keep people from sinning? You know what he was saying? That the Holy Spirit has to have a law so he'll know how to live the Christian life. So we have to put the Holy Spirit under the law so the Holy Spirit, who is God, will know how to live the Christian life. But Romans 8, 4 says that if you walk in the Spirit, the righteousness of the law will be produced in you not by you, but in you. Because he will take the things that you read in the scriptures and work them into your life, working from the inside, working into you the desire to do them. Now, not the feeling to do them. You may not feel like doing something, but still have a desire to do it. You go by your feelings, you're really in trouble. There are a lot of things that I desire to do that I don't feel like doing. And the Holy Spirit gives me those deep-rooted desires. And he then gives the power to move. Now this is the purpose of law, to reveal the utter inability of man to please God by anything that he can do. And the law is given to drive us to see the corruption of our hearts the total depravity of our nature so that we see that we have to utterly depend upon Christ and his provision of the Holy Spirit both to be saved and to walk daily in the Christian life. The Christian life is a moment-by-moment miracle. You cannot live it except by faith. Next week we start the work of Christ on the cross, to provide the forgiveness and set God free to work in our lives and give us eternal life. This concludes Hal Lindsey's lecture on doctrines of salvation number five law versus grace. Please use the fast forward to the end of the tape. Thank you perfect justice, love, and eternal life, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, and veracity. And I would advise the wise to know what each one of those attributes mean. I've already explained them once in class, and I know Dave has too. Dave Sunday, yes. Uh, I don't have my notes on that right now. One of the verses on the sovereignty of God would be in Romans chapter 9. That's the, the sovereignty chapter. And, uh, all, well, let's see. Romans uh, 8, uh, 28 would be one. God causes all things to work together for good, so forth. I have extensive notes on the verses and so forth on this, and I'll have to make them available. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll have to get someone to type up the Scripture on each one of these attributes. All right. When man rejected fellowship with God he sinned against God... He erected this great barrier between himself and God. Now, the, the top of the barrier, the most devastating part of the barrier, is God's absolute righteousness and justice. And man sinned. God looked down upon man, and righteousness said, Man is no longer like me. He is not acceptable to my presence. The only kind of a creature that can have fellowship with God is one who has the same kind of righteousness that God has. Relative righteousness will never do. That is, man comparing himself with other men and saying, well, according to, according to Joe, I'm a lot better than Joe, so I must be pretty good. No, the standard is God himself. And God looked at man, and he saw that man was now minus R. That is the sum total of what man could crank out is still not acceptable to absolute righteousness so he is minus r minus righteousness and justice of god looked down and saw that god's holy law had been violated in it, the task of justice to execute law equitably and so justice said the the wages of sin is death separation from god all right that's the worst part of the barrier. Now, another part is sin. Boy, this is a lousy pencil. Sin, in all of its forms, thought, word, deed. T.W.D., thought, word, and deed. And nature, man's nature is sinful all right then another part of the barrier is slavery man by rebelling against God became the slave of Satan turned over the authority of himself to Satan Satan became his slave master all right then another part of the barrier is spiritual death Man is spiritually dead now this is a barrier because god is a spirit and those who have fellowship with god must have spiritual life and so since man has no longer uh no longer has possession of spiritual life he's physically alive but spiritually dead that is a barrier to fellowship with god all right now this represents the depravity of man this is universal man is incapable of doing anything that can please god or make himself acceptable to god because of these reasons these are the barriers that separate all men from god now in this condition it was hopeless for man to ever have fellowship with god unless god did something and from the beginning, salvation had to come from God. The Scripture says many times salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah chapter 2, I believe it's about verse 9, says that. It's said several times in the Psalms. Salvation is of the Lord. And salvation is not something man does for God because he can't do anything. It's not something that he, uh, man and God do jointly together. Any part that man has in the plan of salvation is corruption. And the Scripture reveals there's only one other possibility. See, the man for God or man and God, the other possibility is it's God for man. And that's the way the Scripture sets it forth. The way this barrier would be torn down would be by the work of God alone. Man could do absolutely nothing to tear that barrier down. And so this brings us to the one who would be, provide the salvation. The person of the Savior is our subject today. Now, this is brought out by the fact that the Scripture says God is one in essence, but he is three in personality as God the first person, God the second person, and God the third person. Each personality in the God has had has exact, exactly the same essence, the same character, but they are three in personality. In perfect harmony together, there's an w- absolute unity of persons, but they are one in essence and three in personality. Now, when man erected this barrier, the scripture indicates that there was a conference held between the Godhead. I'm speaking in man's terms now, so don't press me too hard. I'm just seeking to explain something that happened within the Godhead. So we'll call it the divine conference. And the three persons of the Godhead had a conference together to find how that this barrier could be taken down. Now, the whole reason for the conference was the tremendous love of God. God never stopped loving man. Even though justice burned toward man's sin, love yearned toward man and sought a way to bring him back. And the Father is revealed as the planner of the salvation plan that was devised, the son is revealed as the executor all of this is revealed in ephesians chapter 1 ephesians chapter 1 verse verses 1 through uh, 6 reveals the father is the planner of salvation verses 7 through uh, 12 reveals the son being the executor that is he provided the wherewithal for the plan And the third person is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He's the Applier of salvation. So the Planner, the Executor, and the Applier of salvation. In this conference, the second person who is revealed in the Scripture as being always the one through whom deity expresses itself, the second person... Of his own free choice elected to come into this world and become a man in every sense of the word that man is a man he elected to come in and become in addition to what he always had been that is undiminished deity co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit God the second person came into the world and in his incarnation he became known as the son of god now he was not the son of god before he was born into humanity but in that sense he is the son of god in his humanity so he came into the world and he became what we are turn to john chapter 1 verse 12 This is the miracle of miracles that God became a man as John Wesley put it the infinite contracted to a span and it was strictly voluntary according to Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11 the second person of the Godhead in order and because of his great love for man elected to become what we are the condescension involved there is beyond human comprehension it would be like you and I looking at a bunch of pigs and having an uh, an unbelievable love for them and these pigs had lost their uh, fellowship with us and it would be like becoming a pig in order to redeem the pigs only it's much worse christ left heaven's glory and voluntarily laid aside being the sovereign of the universe voluntarily laid aside his power as the creator now he couldn't give it up but he laid it aside voluntarily he laid aside the use of his power as the eternal creator And became a man and voluntarily lived as a man in order that he could qualify as a man to tear this barrier down and when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem for the first time since the first Adam here was a man with plus R he had absolute righteousness and this satisfied God's standard of absolute righteousness. Now, in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. I'm sure that Dave Sunday has brought out quite a bit on this passage, but there's a contrast between the verb that is used in verse 14 and the verb that is used of the Word in verses 1 through 4 there is the imperfect tense of the verb to be in the greek used throughout verses one through four which means it's a verb of absolute existence it means that he eternally was it is continuous action in past time and so the word is revealed as the one who expresses deity the one who is in in his person deity the one who always has been face to face with God, the one who is the uncreated creator in verse 3, the one who is the source of all life in verse 4, this one became flesh. Now, that is the aorist tense of the verb to be. In contrast with the imperfect tense, which in the Greek the imperfect tense means continuous action in past time. He uses the aorist tense of the verb to be which means to come into being to come into being at a point of time and so the contrast is that the word became at a point of time something he never was before and that is he became flesh he took upon himself a true humanity and dwelt among us he voluntarily dwelt among us And we beheld his glory the innate glory of this perfect man who was also God shown through the only begotten from the father father full of grace and truth and then in verse 18 no man has seen God at any time the only begotten God now this means the only God who's ever been born as a human the only God who's ever been born as a human who is in the bosom of the Father, this shows his absolute intimacy with the Father at all times, even as a man. He has explained him. Now that, verse 18, shows why he's called by the descriptive title, The Word. He is the one, just as my words reveal my invisible self to you. So Jesus Christ reveals the invisible God, and he fully explained him in in all the terms that human beings could understand. All that we could understand about God, Jesus is. He's the personification of everything that human beings can conceive and understand about God. If you want to know about God, there's only one way to find out about him. Look at Jesus. He is in his very person the expression of all that human beings can know about God. And so he became a human being without ceasing to be god and so his perfect righteousness which he had even as a man pleased the father now we've heard before how that the reason he had perfect righteousness as a man is because he was born without a human father therefore he did not have the legal responsibility for the sin of the race upon him he was born without a human father And the reason he was called the Son of God is revealed in Luke chapter 1. Hold your place here and turn to Luke chapter 1. Page 93. Page 93 in your New American Standard New Testament. And I hope you all have one of these by now because that is the textbook of this course. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. We have an emergency call for Barry Leventhal. I didn't know you were here, Barry. You here? Not in here. He's probably in another class. Uh Luke, chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. This is the angel announcing the conception of Jesus to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David verse 35 and the angel answered and said to her she said how can this be since i'm a virgin by the way the word in the greek uh parthenos means virgin it has no other meaning so no one can say that she wasn't a virgin it's stated in the exactness of the greek language that she was a virgin and the angel answered and said to her the holy spirit will come upon you the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now from this verse, verse 35, why is Jesus called the Son of God? Why? Huh? Because who's his father? That's right. His father is God. God is the father of Jesus' humanity. He had a human mother, but God is his father. That's why he's called the Son of God. Profound, isn't it? But you know, it's so it's so simple. It's profound, and that's why so many theologians stumble over it. He's called the Son of God because he is the Son of God. And at that moment there started what is called theologically the hypostatic union this is a theological term but I want you to know it the hypostatic union this is the doctrine of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ this is what that means here's the definition in the one person of Jesus Christ were two natures undiminished deity and true humanity without confusion of essence Without confusion of nature the Union being personal and eternal in other words here's a diagram tell me if you've seen this before you see this all right good in the person of Christ Here's the one person there were two natures undiminished deity which means that he is very God of very God and yet true humanity united in one person forever now here's where the problem comes in everything that Jesus said in the gospels was said from the reference point of one of three possibilities he either spoke from his whole person that is with both natures in view such as when he when he called himself the savior of the world he was speaking from his whole person but when he spoke he would speak from his deity for instance in john chapter 10 verse 30 jesus was speaking from his deity jesus said i and the father are one essence literally i and the father are one essence that's the literal meaning of that statement and the jews who heard him understood exactly what he meant because they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy when jesus asked them why they were about to stone him they said because you being a man make yourself to be god he just went on to, to show that that was not a, a blasphemous state, statement since he was the promised Messiah. He never denied it. In fact that was the basis of his crucifixion. All right? So John 10:30 was spoken from his deity. However, there are many other statements, most of the statements were spoken from his humanity. Look at John chapter 14 for a minute. John chapter 14, verse 28, page 183. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you if you loved me you would have rejoiced because i go to the father for the father is greater than i now that was spoken from his humanity now in jesus humanity he is subject to the father and he is the father is greater than his humanity However, the Father is not greater than his deity, John ten thirty, where he said, I and the Father are one, one in essence, co-equal, co-eternal is the meaning. And, if, of course, all you have to do is read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10, or the whole chapter, actually, where it shows that Jesus is the sovereign of the universe, that he created all things, that he is equal with God in every respect. And Philippians chapter 2, where it says that he thought equality with God was not a thing to be grasped after. The reason is he already had it. He didn't have to grasp after it. Now, why did Jesus have to become, or why did the second person of the Godhead have to become a man? I'm going to give you seven reasons for why he had to become a man. He had to become a man to be the Savior of mankind. Now, there are two reasons for this. The first reason is given in Hebrews. Or rather, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses twenty-one to twenty-two. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses twenty-one and twenty-two. It says, "For since by man, by a man, came death; by a man also came the resurrection of the dead." Since it was man who brought about death through sin, it would have to be another man to bring about resurrection from the dead. So whoever would be the Savior of the world would have to be a true man. That's the point. All right, what's the penalty of sin? Death. Can God die? No. Obviously he had to become someone who could die. So that's the second reason he had to become a man so that he could take the penalty of man's sin and pay it hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 and 14 page 371 where it says but we do see jesus who has been made for a little while lower than angels namely Jesus because of the because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone in other words the second person of the Godhead was born to die in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 10 brings that out and you can read that later Hebrews chapter 10 verses 5 through 10 the deity of Christ Said the moment that he was born as a human, the deity of Christ said to the Father, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have made me, and in burnt offerings and sacrifices you had no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will. And the will of the Father was that he be born to die as a sacrifice for man's sin. And so he, was, he had to be a true man, in order to die for men. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, that is, the children that God would bring to himself through Christ, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death, that is, the devil. See, he delivered the authority of death from Satan at the cross. All right. the the third reason that jesus had to become a man first timothy chapter 2 verse 5 to be a mediator first timothy chapter 2 verse 5 where it says God, uh, verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will or God's wish. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Now here's the point of this. It's taught in the scripture, in Job chapter 9 especially, where the daysman, that the word daysman means the mediator, that in order to mediate between two per, two persons, you have to be equal to both persons in the mediation. Now the one who could bring man and God back together had to be equal to both persons. There's only been one person in the history of the universe and there will only be one in the history of the universe who's ever been equal to both god and man the man christ jesus so he had to be a god man to be the mediator between man and god he had to be god because he had to have absolute righteousness to qualify to die for the sins of man he had to be truly a man because it was man who sinned and so therefore He had to be exactly like man, only without sin himself. If he had sin of his own, of any kind, then he would have had to die for his own sins. He couldn't have died for the sins of others. All right? He had to become a man to be a priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, and chapter 5, verses 1 and 10, 1 through 10. A priest is one who represents man's cause to God. And so, he had to be, in order to be a priest and intercede for man before the throne of God, Jesus had to be a man. He had to also experience the temptations of man, experience all of the trials of man in, in order to be able to be a perfect intercessor. Because he knows all of the things we're going through. He knows how to represent our cause before God perfectly. And that should be a great comfort to you. The scripture says the intercessory ministry of Christ before the throne is constantly going on and that he represents your cause perfectly to the Father. In Hebrews chapter 4 Verses uh, 14 through 16 says that in that he also was tempted, being uh, suffered, being tempted, it says he is able to perfectly represent us to the Father. Therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right? Fifth, he had to become a man in order to be the revealer, the revealer of God to man. Since man has become spiritually dead and he's lost the accurate concept of God, God had to become visible in terms we could understand for us to even know him. And Jesus Christ, as I said, is all that God is, manifest in human form. John chapter 1 verse 18 John chapter 14 verse 9 where Jesus said he that has seen me has seen the father shows he did a perfect job of revealing God now this shows his deity right there because it takes an infinite person to reveal an infinite being all right he had to become a man in order to be a king on David's throne long before god promised that david would have a greater son who would reign over on on his throne over israel forever and so jesus had to be born as a direct blood descendant of david in order to fulfill that prophecy luke 1 verses 31 through 33 brings this out all right seventh he had to be a man in order to be a kinsman redeemer a kinsman redeemer Now this is a concept that is taught in the old testament especially in the book of ruth but in the law of moses it was it was teaching the qualifications of one who would be a redeemer that is who would pay the ransom price for man's slavery and set him free whenever a jewish person was put in slavery the only one who could pay the ransom price to release him from slavery was someone near of kin and this was to teach that the one who would pay the ransom price for man's sin would have to be near of kin. It would have to be a man. And so this is the concept that it, only a man who was perfect and therefore had the ransom price could redeem man. All right, those are the reasons why Jesus had to become a man. That's seven because there were two under the Savior. All right? Jesus, during his earthly life, lived one of the most fantastic truths of all times. And if you don't get anything else out of this course, I hope you get this one because this is most important. In order for Jesus Christ to qualify to die for our sins, in order for him to qualify to go to the cross for us, he had to live just like we do as a man. And I mean by that, he had to be sustained in his humanity by the Holy Spirit. And everything Jesus Christ did and said, He did as a man depending upon the Holy Spirit by faith in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 2 through 4 it says keep looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith the author and perfecter of our faith literally now the writer there says that that is one of the keys of living the Christian life is to keep looking to Jesus, looking off and away to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But let me ask you a question. What do you look at? You know, I used to read that verse and say, okay, well, I'm going to look off and away to Jesus. And I'd start thinking and I'd say, now let's see, what do I look at? Oh, oh yeah, I'd conjure up one of, rain, uh, one of our hooks Portraits of Christ. And you know, it didn't have very much power over temptation. It just didn't help me much. You aren't supposed to conjure up some image of Christ. What you're supposed to look at is the way that he lived his life. Because it says he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, you see, back here in eternity past, it says the Lord Jesus is the author of the way of faith. In other words, he is the one who thought up the way that man would live by faith. He devised the whole means of coming to God by faith because faith is the only thing you can do and not do anything. Faith is the only thing that is non-meritorious. When you believe God, it, it's absolutely no merit on your part if you understand what it means. Now, he devised the whole means of coming to God by faith. Now, someone could say, boy, that was great, Jesus. You devised this plan. But, boy, it's rough. But no one can say that to Jesus because he's not a captain. Who devised a plan and then sat back in headquarters and watched you work it he came down to this earth and he went into the arena of temptation himself and he walked by faith the very plan that he had planned and he proved that it works he's a captain that got down into the very temptation that we have who became what we are exactly and he lived by faith just as he had planned for us to live, and he proved that it works. That's what you look at. Everything that Jesus did in that magnificent life that he lived, he lived by depending on the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to have to ask you to save your questions because I've got to do this, but tonight I don't know of any conflicts. What is that? A test tomorrow well instead of me giving you homework I'm going to give you one hour tonight of uh, a seminar so I want you all present tonight what would be the best time for you seven o'clock all right seven o'clock I'm not loading you heavily with uh, homework so not that I know of seven o'clock here All right? The important thing to see in the person of Jesus as the Savior is how he was tempted. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4 for a minute. Luke chapter 4. Verse 1, page 100. Now this is just after Jesus entered his public ministry, which would lead to the cross. Jesus has presented himself as the Savior to the Father, and he has presented himself as willing to go to the cross. So in verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, now notice, his humanity was filled with the Spirit, which means he was walking. By moment by moment dependence upon the Holy Spirit for power guidance and everything else he returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit into the wilderness now the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted and it says for 40 days while tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days and when that ended he became hungry well I suppose he was hungry Now the devil tempted him the whole time, but three of the greatest temptations, which he was given, are listed for us. The first temptation is verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God. Now in the Greek there are four conditional clauses. There is an if of the first class, which means if and it's true. There's an if of the second class, which means if and it's not true. There's an if of the third class which which means if maybe it is and maybe it isn't and there's an if of the fourth class which means if maybe it is but it probably isn't all right they had you see the greek language is the most explicit language ever devised by the minds of men that's why god used it to write the new testament revelation now this is the first class condition which means if you are the son of god and you are so the Satan wasn't questioning whether he was the Son of God he was just rubbing it in he was saying since you are the Son of God tell these stones to become bread now this was a great temptation to Jesus and it was just at the opportune time now let's say that you were out in the desert back out here, let's say, in Desert Center around Death Valley, and you hadn't eaten for 40 days. And Satan communicated with you and said, since you're a child of God, make these stones bread. Would that be a temptation to you? Huh? I don't think it would be, because you couldn't do it. But Jesus could have appealed to his power as deity with a flash of his will, and just by willing it, he could have turned that whole desert into a bakery. You see, that was the temptation. And if he had used his deity, it would have disqualified him from being a man. He would have not been living as a man, and there wouldn't be any salvation for you and me today. He had to live by utter dependence upon the Father. He could have done anything that he did by his own power, but he had to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. He had to be totally dependent, as you and I are supposed to be totally dependent. You see, the temptation by parallel to us is to do it in our own flesh, to walk by the flesh. In other words, when we are uh, led to do something, the temptation, because maybe as a you know in your own makeup let's say you're called upon to speak so you get up depending on your own ability to speak because you're a good speaker by nature that'd be an abomination to God no matter what we're called upon to do we're not to depend upon our own strength but to depend upon the Holy Spirit and so that's a parallel between the life of Christ and us today the thing is Jesus had the power to do anything but he was to depend upon him. His life was the model life of what God wanted man to be all along. This is what he wanted the first Adam to be and now the second Adam is doing it. The life that God wants us to have is a completely derived life. It's only then that your distinct personality can really come out. It's only when you depend upon the Holy Spirit that your real uniqueness as the one person can come out. It's only then that you're really complete as to what God created you to be. We're not all just alike. We're all different. But as we depend upon the Holy Spirit, the uniqueness of our personality is brought out with the character of Christ in it. And that's what we look to when it says looking off and away to Jesus. And the word is in the present tense. It's a command. It means keep on looking off and away to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the, instead of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Or uh, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. You know what he was contemplating when he was doing all of this? You. You were the joy that was set before him. And he endured those things to the point of shedding blood because he loved you. Now, you know, it's one thing to suffer and not be able to do anything about it. But it's quite another thing to suffer and know that any time you will it you could change it and yet Jesus loved us so much that he always steadfastly refused to use his deity and he walked as a man moment by moment depending upon the Holy Spirit when he hung upon that cross every moment he hung there was agony but the greatest agony was not the physical suffering it says that he prayed and sweated drops of blood in the garden when he contemplated the cup that was about to be handed to him. Now I used to ask myself, what is that cup? I used to think, well, the cup was the cup of the physical sufferings that it was to be crucified. But you know, when you stop and think about it, if you could save the whole world by suffering for six hours on a cross, I think I might do that. So that's not so great then i thought well maybe the cup is the sins of the world since here was a perfectly holy person coming in contact with sin would be as repugnant or a thousand times more repugnant than a woman raised in purity in a home and suddenly being sold in a house of prostitution only much more so well that was a suffering but even then i might conceivably do that if the the fate of the world was on it but the scripture reveals that the use of the word cup down through the Bible the cup stands for the poured out fury of a God who is angry with sin of a God whose perfect law has been violated by the creature and that cup stood for all of the wrath of a just God against the sin of the creature and when Jesus hung upon the cross all of the poured out fury of a holy god against sin was poured out on him and yet he did it by faith he's the perfecter of faith and that's the person of the savior who came to die for us there's only one time in all of christ's ministry where it seems to be that he actually let his deity shine through and God let this happen and that was in John chapter 19 where he was in the garden and the whole garden was surrounded with a whole cohort of Roman soldiers this means about a thousand men a thousand men came out to take Jesus captive and uh, So Jesus boldly walks up to the tribune, and he says, Whom do you seek? And the tribune replied insolently, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus simply said these words, I am. Now that I am is his great name that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, verses 10 through 14 and at that moment when he said his name it says that everyone the the, of the at least a thousand armed men were flung backwards flat of their backs everyone and the next time that tribune answered jesus question whom seek you it was with a little bit of reverence And it was only by the will of Jesus that they could get off of their backs and take him captive. You see, God just had to show that you don't take the creator of the universe captive without some display of the fact that he did it voluntarily. But he let those men get off their backs because he loved you and me. Now I'm going over time, but... Please don't penalize John, but I just got to get one other thing across. You guys stay in your seats and stretch and be here when John gets here, but I just got to get one more thing across, and that's this. What is the greatest crime that has ever been committed in the world? What? Right, the crucifixion of God, the Son of God. That is the greatest crime that man has ever committed. There is nothing. Hitler didn't do anything as bad as that. You can't do anything as bad as that. And yet, look what God did with what we did. The greatest crime that we ever committed against God became the very way that God forgave us. It was through our greatest crime against God that God provided salvation. Now, that's what grace is all about. Now, if God has forgiven us the greatest crime, in fact, he took our greatest crime and turned it around and made it the means of forgiving us all our sins, do you think there's any other sin that can't be forgiven? There's only one sin that God can't forgive, and that's that men be so stupid that they turn down God's provision for sin. But the moment a person places faith in Jesus Christ, at that moment he's saved forever. This concludes Hal Lindsey's lecture on Doctrines of Salvation, number 6, Why Christ Became Man. Please use the fast-forward to the end of this tape. Thank you.